Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Amen. Technology. We love technology. When it helps us, when it doesn't. Amen. <laughs> All right. Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. I want to extend my thanks to Pastor Justin last week, a dear brother and friend from Fisherville Baptist Church, our sister church in Southern Seminary, for bringing the word to us at Harrison Hills last Sunday. Though it was a question how well we in Indiana could follow that Alabama accent. It took a little tuned ear for us northern folks, I think. But it's such a blessing to connect with the local church that's around us. A reminder that we are not alone out here in Lanesville. That we're part of a worldwide body that is praying for us. And we are praying for them. Well, I'm thankful for Justin's message from John 10. That it was a blessing to you. And I want to thank as well all who contributed so faithful, faithfully to being able to gather today as the body of Christ. As the ecclesia as the called out ones, those who have been called out of darkness and those who have been living their lives pointing to a risen Savior. We've been called out of the world. We point to a king who not only dined with the dregs of society in our gospel, but he saved them as well. And if he didn't save the dregs of society, I can tell you I would not be here. None of us would be here. We were the dregs. And the only reason God is pleased with us is because He is so infinitely pleased with His Son. Your salvation, your peace with God is the product of a love relationship between the Father and the Son. It's no merit of ourself. God loves us because He loves His Son, Jesus Christ, and is immeasurably satisfied in what He has accomplished. Christians are a gift from the Father to the Son. Read John 6, John 17, Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. And guess what? No gift, no gift that the Father presents to the Son is ever lost. Could you even imagine God the Son losing a gift given to Him by God the Father? If you are in Christ, that is your security here this morning bestowed as a gift from the hand of the Father into the hand of the Son. So if you have moments of doubt, look that doubt square in the face this week and remember whose hand you were put into and by whom you were placed there. And go about your day in peace, in love, and in boldness. Amen? Yes. Well, we had a breather from Mark last week. And for some of you, you know, your Bible's kind of starting to crease to the gospel of Mark as you open it up. Don't you love that? But by way of reminder, we left off with the master having completed the first section of its kind in this gospel. Mark throttles back from being the gospel of action of go, go, go to giving us our first section of teaching extensive talking and teaching by Jesus. It's very rare. So if Mark was slowing down, so were we. And so we did. But Jesus introduced in our last few messages a relatively new kind of teaching for him up to this point. He began speaking to them in parables. We began with the parable of the soils, didn't we? Jesus explained to us why some respond to the gospel and others do not. 
And from there we had some almost mini parables, some offshoots of the soils by Jesus then talking about the lamp. Remember the lamp going on the lampstand, telling us not to speak cryptically to those around you, to proclaim my message with boldness, clearly for all to hear. This is not a secret message, but put the lamp on the lampstand. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify him who is in heaven. And finally, our last message, we saw the savior of the world tell us what the kingdom of God is like. Isn't that something? It was nothing grand or remarkable. In fact, our savior pointed us to seeds. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes down to bed. He wakes up of no effort of its own and the crop springs up by itself. There's a mystery to the process. The germination of the seed, especially the germination of the seed that the farmer did nothing to tend to. The point being made was that the farmer had no control over that seed. The farmer cannot make that seed sprout. The life that is generated from this seed has nothing to do with the sower. Salvation is not of you. Salvation is of the Lord. Finally, as Jesus is putting kind of a bow on this gift of teaching that he's given us, in closing, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The smallest of seeds known to this people, completely unremarkable to see and very easily missed will sprout up into a mammoth 10 to 15 foot tall plant, so large that even the birds can come and find rest in its leaves. Jesus shows us both the means of the kingdom of heaven by the scattering of the seed, which is the word of God, and the magnitude of it by pointing us to the mustard plant. I hope that this rare time of teaching, very rare time of teaching from Jesus in Mark's gospel will stick with you that it will comfort you in times of doubt, that it will help you make sense of the world we see around us with the vast majority rejecting the gospel, but that we rest in the sovereignty of God. And I know when we think about the parable of the soils, like our own family, for example, that have grown children that are not walking with the Lord. As if reformed folks, we understand and we lean on and we preach the sovereignty of God. Yes, we're very good at that. But often it's not his sovereignty we quietly question. Sometimes it's his goodness that we question. If our child has rocky or shallow soil, if they are even in fact vessels of wrath, is God still good? Yes, he is. Pray and pray more. Yes, he is sovereign. He is also good. He is also good. Remember the soils. Remember the lampstand. Remember the seeds and the mustard plant. Bury them away. They will be of great comfort to you. Well, today we resume the mark we've all been familiar with. The one I'm very excited to get back to. Our gospel of action. Back to public ministry. Jesus showing us who he is. Not so much by what he says, but by what he does. I'm going to prove it. Today's text is going to put that into high definition. We're in a narrative that most have known since they were knee-high in Sunday school. I can just see Miss Tina teaching this right now. Jesus calming the storm. Now, I can tell you as a pastor, approaching a text like this is like walking into a buffet. At first, it can seem overwhelming at all the choices. There's so many places that we can go. 
And if we looked, but if we looked at the application of the text, that's true in a sense. But I want to first remind us of a principle. We need to read our Bibles correctly, don't we? If we're going to read our Bibles rightly, it means we have to follow the rules of reading our Bibles. Some may not have known that there are rules for reading our Bibles. I thought you just read it. Well, there sure are. And if we stray outside of those rules, we risk making the text say something that it doesn't say. So three very quick key rules to remember as we dive into this text today. One, a text only has one meaning. One, it's our job as expository preachers and you as expository listeners to figure out what that one meaning is. And two, a text can never mean what it never meant. A text can never mean what it never meant. Meaning, whatever I preach that this text means today, I had better be able to go to that first century Jew and they would know exactly what I'm talking about. A text can never mean what it never meant. And finally, three, we can have many applications within that meaning. This is where it can get fun in a text like this. But we can also get ourselves into troubles, trouble in stories like Jesus calming the storm. How many of us have seen a sermon series like Jesus calming the storm of your life? Right. Well, of course, this has little to do with the text, nor is it the primary meaning. And how many meanings can a text have? One, one meaning, one meaning, but multiple applications within that meaning. Make sense. All right. So if we read our Bibles by the rules, we'll keep ourselves from error. All right. From bad teaching and from being disappointed. A lot of people are disappointed because they think their Bible told them something that it didn't say. That's why we have to follow the rules. Knowing the rules of reading, we follow them. So with that, let's jump into this wonderful and familiar story. Mark 4, 35 through 41. Mark 4, 35 through 41. And on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And they got him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? That we are perishing. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you so cowardly? Do you still have no faith? And they became very afraid and were saying to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our text this morning. A reminder of the God we serve. Let us see more clearly your majesty and your beauty. Let us see your power and your authority. Put us in that boat. Let us witness he who was and he who is and most certainly he who is to come in Jesus name. Amen. Well, in 1986, the Hull 
of a fishing boat was recovered from the mud on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That would be about five miles south of Capernaum. And the boat was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high, and corresponds perfectly in design to a first century mosaic of a Galilean uh, boat preserved in Migdal, only a mile from the discovery site. Well, they put it through carbon-14 dating technology, and it dated it right to the time of Jesus, exactly at the time of Jesus. Both fore and aft sections of the boat appear to have been covered with a deck that provided space on which you could sit or lie. And the boat was propelled by four rowers. You had two on either side and a total capacity of about 15 persons. The Galilee boat, as it's known, corresponds exactly to the boat in our scene today. Now, not that anyone's going to be traveling to Israel anytime soon, but if you do, you can see this boat. It's in a chapel where you can go and sit. And when I was there, they were actually holding a service in this chapel. It was very powerful. But why does this boat matter? Whether it's the actual boat or not, likely not. But if we were to sit in that chapel and gaze on it, or if we see our scene, or if we're just looking at the scene in, the, in our mind's eye today, what is the point? What is the central truth that we are to see and consider? What is the meaning of this story? Jesus is God. Full stop. There it is. Jesus is fully divine. That is the overarching purpose of Mark recording this scene. We have multiple smaller meanings as we as we drill down. But from a bird's eye view, what do we take away? Jesus is God. It sounds simplistic unless you now start to consider the implications of this. It's no less than cosmic. It is the largest, most simple statement that we can make. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and was in the beginning with God. Paul told the Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God and that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul gives the Colossians a double helping of this. He says, for by him, all things were created by Jesus. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What you can see and what you can't see, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16. I need verse 17 as well. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. In Christ, in him, the molecules, the atoms are held together. In him, all things hold together. Without Christ, reality itself would collapse upon itself. It could not exist. The universe in a moment would spin out of control. Protons, neutrons, the perfect axis we spin on are all held together in Christ. The breath you just took given to you by Christ. And many of us use that breath to mock the very God that just gave it to us. We must have this foundation. We have to have this foundation before we get into the boat with the disciples today, because that's what it all means. If we grab hold of this today, could we ever fret at the news 
or whatever life comes and brings to our front door? Could anything rock our boat where we would yell to Jesus, wake up, don't you see what's happening? How foolish of us. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Grab hold of this today and you will sleep like a baby. We have much to see here, so let's begin. Mark 4, verse 35. Oh, I'm so excited for this text. Mark 4, verse 35. And on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. All right, what day are we talking about here? We need to see this for Jesus taking a snooze on the boat later on to make more sense. Look in your Bibles all the way back to chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. Remember this. Remember this? And he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Do you remember that? Then he gets accused of doing the things he's doing by Satan. Verse 22, the unpardonable sin. Then his family comes to take custody of him because they think he's lost his mind. He's crazy. Then he goes out again into the boat and teaches the throngs. This was all the same day. That's easy for us to miss in the chronology here. Jesus being thronged when he came home, so much so that he couldn't even eat, being accused of being in cahoots with Satan, your family thinking you're crazy, spending the rest of the day teaching to thousands of people who most likely will not listen to you. That's one day. I thought I've had some rough days in ministry. So when we see Jesus taking a nap later on here, hopefully we understand a little better why. But Mark wants us to make this timeline connection. Why? How do we know that? Because Mark here said, what does he say here? When evening came. When evening came. Mark rarely, if ever, uses time identifiers in his writing. That means this is important. He wants you to appreciate and make that connection. He said to them, let us go over to the other side. Well, as a reminder, Capernaum is where Jesus was teaching. The throngs from when he was standing out in the boat. That's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. This was a busy place. This is where all the people were. Now over on the eastern side of the shore, it's sparsely populated. And the population that was there were pagans. So no Jew would go there. They even taught that this was where the devil lived. So lucky them, here is where you could get away. So that is where they're heading from the northwest side over to the east side. Desolation and pagans. And Mark is trying to allude to this by using the term other side. It's kind of like you were to say, oh, you're going over there. That's what Mark means here when he said he's going over to the other side. Got it? So just the willingness of the disciples to follow Jesus over to the other side is an act of obedience. Most of these are good Jews. They don't go cavorting with pure pagans, an area they taught was full of devils. And by the way, they weren't completely wrong. Look down in your Bibles at chapter 5, verse 1. What's waiting for them on the other side? The demoniac of the garrison. The man possessed by legion. Come on, disciples. You've got a lot to learn. But they were obedient to go with Christ where he said they should go. Thus does obedience to the word of Jesus Guarantee no storms in your life. Not hardly. 
Not hardly. In fact, Scripture goes farther than that. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If the gospel you believe does not include it bringing trouble into your world, you have a different gospel. Back to our text, verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Well, just prior to leaving this crowd, there's a conversation that happens that Mark doesn't record. But rotate the diamond of the gospel to Matthew momentarily, and we'll see it. No need to turn there. I'll read it for you. But Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22, it reads, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. This is a command by Jesus. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Really? Wherever I go? You have no idea what these guys are about to experience here in 30 minutes. To follow me is to get into this boat. I know what's coming. And you, sir, scribe, are a fair-weather disciple. You will flee the moment it gets hard or uncomfortable. That won't work. And Jesus goes on to paint this scribe a picture in Matthew 8, verse 20. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, there's the prosperity gospel for you. The gospel is to bid thee come and die. Maybe not in your physical body. That's easier. But much harder is to bid thee come and die to yourself, to your fears, to your desires. Jesus is Lord of the universe and he's using a rock as a pillow. Follow me wherever I might go. Here comes another one in Matthew's account. After the scribe, he's looking for a compromise as well with Jesus. Verse 21. And another of the disciples came to him. Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus tells this man to come follow me. Does Jesus know where they're heading? Follow me. Do it and you're headed into a nasty storm. But follow me now and you will learn so much between here and the other side of the lake. These are conversations that are happening just prior to them pushing off toward the other side. So back to our text now in Mark, verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. A few interesting things here to note. First, we have Jesus' boat that he was in. And based on the boat that we found at the Sea of Galilee, we know that these boats hold approximately how many? About 15. But this says other boats were with him. So contrary to the coloring book images we see of Jesus calming the storm with his 12 disciples around them, that's not exactly an accurate picture, is it? We have quite a few. There were other boats with him. How many? Well, I'm going to guess 72 disciples at this point based on what we see in John 6, meaning probably five boats. Now, that's a guess, but that changes the scene in our minds a little bit, doesn't it? Changes the scene. And while we're on the topic of these 72 disciples, I want you to just tuck aside in your mind what they are about to witness. Jesus' demonstration of creation power over all nature and yet later in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to say some very tough things to them. And John writes, verse 66, 
as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. Isn't that something? Do you want to know the last thing that Jesus said to these disciples in verse 65 before they abandoned Jesus, before they left in verse 66? I'll read it for you. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. These men would witness the miraculous power of Jesus over all nature as up close and personal as you can get until Jesus attacks their religious presuppositions. He attacks their pride and they're gone. There's nothing new under the sun, saints. Back to our text. What happens now? These disciples have been obedient to Jesus. They're following him over to the other side. Hey, I'm in obedience to God now, right? Life should be smooth. Not even close. Verse 37. Mark 4, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. But we need to understand something of the topography here of the Sea of Galilee for us to appreciate what we're talking about. So recall that the Sea of Galilee resides about 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by mountains and steep cliffs and ravines. And what happens is that cold air up from the Golan Heights, up from Mount Hermon, the same Mount Hermon you read in, about in Psalms, that's 9,200 feet. And that air comes accelerating off the mountain. Now does cold air rise or sink? It sinks, right? So it comes barreling down and it's picking up speed faster and faster till it hits the cliffs around the sea. And then it goes even faster down those cliffs and it collides with that moist, warm air above the sea. And the result are epic, epic storms. And to this day, the storms on the Sea of Galilee are known to be sudden and violent. Well, it says that a windstorm arose, doesn't it? Now, this is very unusual. When did most men on the Sea of Galilee do their fishing? They fished at night, right? Why? Well, at night, the lake cools down. So now you have less temperature differential between the air falling down off Mount Hermon and that of the lake, meaning you have less winds, less storms. So you fish at night. Very few storms at night. So that makes this storm special. It makes it unique. Now, you could get rain and maybe some stormy type weather at night, but not like this. What is this? This is gale force winds. The descriptors used in other gospels tell us this was fierce. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. It's highly unnatural. But were these experienced fishermen? Yeah. Would they have already been grabbing buckets trying to keep their boat, this boat afloat? Yes. Peter, Andrew, James, John, these are fishermen, hardcore, but they can't keep up. This boat is going down if something doesn't change. The waves are crashing against our boat. If we don't get an intervention here, we're going down. Theologian Cole writes, when serious trials hit, I often hear people say, the Lord didn't cause this trial. He allowed it. Somehow they think they're getting God off the hook. Sometimes they'll even say, Satan, not God, caused this tragedy. They think that by blaming Satan or, or saying that God only allowed it, that they somehow preserve his love. But they do so at the expense of his sovereignty. Yet the Bible clearly affirms that God is both loving 
and sovereign. You will not derive any comfort in trials, saints, by denying God's sovereignty. True, God may use Satan to bring trials, as he did in the case of Job. But you will find comfort in trials only if you affirm both God's absolute sovereignty and his unfailing love. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7 adds that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is none other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. When storms arise in your life or when calamity strikes society or an individual in some way, God does not need you to watch out for him. He does not need you to defend his love, nor does he need an apologist. When a tornado rips through a trailer park causing disaster and calamity, the world and even the Christians, they clutch their pearls when you would suggest that in fact God is in the weather department. He is. They say that God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't cause that. If it's calamitous, it either has to be the devil or it has to be God allowing the devil to do something, but never from the hand of God. But that's not what Isaiah says. He is the Lord who does all things. It's his world. It's his creation. We are his creation. The psalmist says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's not in a capricious way. That's not in a flippant way. God is not us. We mustn't impose the attributes of fallen man onto a holy God. He always does what is right and good, but he does whatever he pleases in accordance with his attributes. He causes well-being and he creates calamity. That's what Isaiah says. Remember that in light of this storm, the disciples now find themselves in. And if that flies against your theology, you're going to need to take that one up with the author. So what do we now see in the midst of this chaos? Back to our text. Verse 38. Mark 4, verse 38. And Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. Stop there. There's a lot to see here. First thing we need to observe. This is the only time... In scripture that shows our savior sleeping. This is it. And that's in a storm. That's it. No other place in scripture does it show our savior sleeping. Now, if you can't run with your own application on that one, you're just not trying. I'm sorry. What other beautiful point of theology and of Christology do we see here? Jesus is exhausted, right? He's exhausted. Why? Because he's fully man. He's fully man, yet we see his creative power over nature. In our text, we have demonstrated what's known as the hypostatic union. Fancy word. It simply means that Jesus was fully God and fully man all at the same time. At no point did he cease to be fully God and fully man. He was not 50% God and 50% man making 100%. He was 100% God. And 100% man. Two natures fully and simultaneously. Now saints, some of you checked out there, but that's not theological trivia. We need to understand this. If we don't have the hypostatic union correct, we have a different Jesus. 
And if you have a different Jesus, you don't have a saving faith. So it matters. It matters. So here in our text, Jesus sleeps and he goes to sleep knowing what is coming. Look at this example of faith. Being able to sleep in the presence of a storm like this. That's true sleep. That's true faith. That's absolute surety. There's no such peace in the disciples, though, this night, is there? Has anyone ever watched The Deadliest Catch? Those salty fishermen? What scares those guys? Nothing. You watch them and they're just getting slammed by the waves, smoking their cigarettes, and they don't care. They're just pressing on, aren't they? Nothing scares these old salty fishermen. I wonder what kind of storm it would take to terrify a group of experienced fishermen. Last part of verse 38. And they got him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The waves have gotten very large and God has all of a sudden gotten very small. Either people and circumstances will be big and God will be small or God will be big and the people and the circumstances will be small. This is the choice that will confront you nearly every day. Who is going to loom large? People and circumstances or God? The circle's only so big. One will crowd out the other. They both can't be big in your circle. It's impossible. If the people are big, if the circumstances are big, if the waves are big, then God will be small in your circle. If God be big in your circle, if you are lifting up and exalting the sovereignty of a great God, if you are resting quietly with Jesus on the cushion, if God be big, the waves grow small. We cannot have both. One will necessarily crowd out the other. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're going to die here. Everything I'm seeing tells me we are going to die. But what did Jesus say? What did he tell them when they left the shore? Let us pass over to the other side. Did Jesus say, let us head out into the middle of the lake and drown a watery death? No, he said, let us pass over to the other side. Guess what that means? That means that every devil in hell, every scheme of the world can come crashing into your boat and you're going to the other side. We're not going to die. Jesus hath said, we are going to the other side. There's a period at the end of that. There's no asterisk. Let us go to the other side. And guess what? I don't even send you off alone. I am with you. I am right there in the boat with you. But how long did it take for them to forget his words? How long did it take? Well, I know how big the Sea of Galilee is. The answer, not long. The moment the waves became big, God became small. Every word, every promise, every declaration from the master that they saw with their eyes, that they heard with their own ears, was thrown out the window when fear entered in. Let us go to the other side. Remember my words. Jesus does not lose his people halfway through. 
doesn't happen. But how do we forget saints? How much do we need a daily outpouring of grace? How much do we need reminding from his word? The answer is constantly, constantly until we reach glory. We have a mind, saints, that the moment it's reoriented correctly, it immediately starts straying again, just like that. That's not to discourage you or to discourage us. That's to encourage us that we are dependent creatures, gloriously dependent. These disciples forgot Jesus words the moment it looked like their safety was at risk. But these waves cannot touch us. The great missionary Lottie Moon once said, quote, I am immortal until God is done with me. End quote. Jesus said, we are going over to the other side. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I am with you. These disciples are terrified. They're terrified. What happens when you're scared? You start lashing out as well, don't you? You start throwing around accusations. You abandon your senses. How about in our verse? The disciples, as they're speaking to Jesus, the Greek shows that they were speaking to him in a blunt, in a rude, and in a panicked fashion. They look at the one who will hang on a bloody cross for them. And what do they say in verse 38? Do you not care? Do you not care? The moment fear strikes, the moment we feel we are in danger, we tend to lose rationality. We lash out at those who may love us most. What kind of question is that to Jesus? Do you not care? That tells us so much of the human condition, doesn't it? And what is that condition? That we're human. Well, the world uses that as an excuse, don't they? Well, I'm only human. When the knowledge that we are human should drive us to the cross. Well, I'm only human. Exactly. That's why you need a savior. That's why you need a savior. Every one of us have cried out the same cry to God in one way or another in our lives, haven't we? Lord, you don't care that I've lost my job, that my marriage is on the rocks. Lord, don't you care that my child is sick, or that my bank account is empty? Don't you care, Lord, that I'm lonely, or that I'm scared about the future? Don't you care, Lord? Unless we stand in judgment over these disciples for forgetting Jesus' words, we are the first to forget or to question the goodness of God when our tides turn, aren't we? We're the first ones to do that. Saints, grasp hold of this. When these waves come and they buffet your boat, when it looks certain that we are going to die, that the water is coming in, ask yourself this question. Whose idea was it to get in the boat in the first place. You're in that boat at the behest of and at the command of the master. He put you there. What if the disciples saw those waves? They saw that boat filling up and they grabbed their buckets, sure of success. Jesus said, we're going to the other side. He is faithful. Even if my boat sinks and I'm sinking underwater, he can put air in your lungs if he so chooses. You're going to the other side. Faith is a fight. You've got to fight. Back to our text. How does our Savior respond? Verse 39. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, 
silence, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Well, the English loses this, but here the language used seems to indicate that the disciples had to literally shake him repeatedly to wake him up. He was in a deep, deep sleep. Isn't that beautiful? Almost comical, if that's the right word, to see this deep, deep sleep amidst this panic. It's convicting for us, isn't it? That's convicting. Now, notice Jesus addresses the two elements separately. He doesn't just say to the storm overall, hey, cut it out and be quiet. He first rebukes the wind, silence, and second, the sea, be still. Now, Mark is almost writing a bit poetically here. He's writing in what's called parallelism, which is very unusual for him. But we need to actually see, there's a reason, we need to actually see two separate miracles here. The wind ceasing immediately and the sea stilling immediately. Saints, if you have a sea that, that has been turned up and has been disturbed by great winds, even if the wind stops immediately, is that sea still disturbed? Yes, it is. Definitely. These both happen simultaneously. That's not natural. Winds can stop immediately, but for a sea to instantly go to glass, that's another matter. He first rebukes the wind. And this word for rebuke is interesting. It's a very interesting one. When we look for some parallel usages, we find we come up with one in the Old Testament. Epitamao. We find it used in Psalm 106, verse 9. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. And he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. That's not an accident. That's not coincidence. Jesus' divinity, the creative command of God himself, is as much on display here as it was when he parted the Red Sea for Israel. This is no less an authoritative act. Jesus is very God of very God. And he must hold that title and position in your heart or you have no part of him. Every religion in the world, nearly every person in the world will acknowledge the great aspects of Jesus, his teaching, his love, his kindness. But where they all fall off is his divinity or they try and chip away or diminish that divinity, divinity in some way, anything to make him less than the father. That is not a Jesus that can save you from your sins. He must be God of very God. Co-equal with God the Father, co-equal with the Holy Spirit. He who split the Red Sea is three in one. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. This is not a calm that this is a calm that cannot be overstated. This is not a ripple. This is not a lingering wave. Not one more lap up against the side of the boat. Nothing. Still glass. Teacher, we are going to die to glass just like that. See what these men saw. Put yourself in that boat to experience such a thing. Jesus now turns his attention to another storm. The tempest will call of unfaithfulness that overcame his disciples in a moment of weakness and fear. Verse 40. And he said to them, why are you so cowardly? Do you still have 
no faith. The storm didn't bother Jesus, but unbelief sure did. Now, this isn't a harsh rebuke. Jesus has rebuked his disciples much harsher in other places, but he's dealing gently with them. He's not dealing with the disciples according to their unbelief and fear, which is sin, right? He's not dealing with them according to that. He asks them a question that contains the answer. Why are you so cowardly? It's because you still have no faith. Jesus is saying, I was at peace. You saw me sleeping. Why were you not at peace? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. The response of the disciples here is one we must appreciate. Verse 41. Verse 41. And they became very afraid. Stop there. They were not just afraid. They were very afraid. They were terrified. And here's what's remarkable. They thought they were afraid of the storm. They had high fear that they were going to die in that boat. And now they were terrified. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We've seen all the miracles up to this point. We thought we knew this guy. But this is God. This is God. God himself is in this boat with us. I think this is the first time that I think the core 12 actually started to grasp who this was that they were following. They were more terrified about who this was in the boat with them than of the storm that just nearly killed them. More terrified. If your conversion story, saints, did not at some point involve trembling before a holy God, we have not seen him as he is. We are still the disciples back on the shore before we pushed off. We've seen the many wonderful things he has done, and we think we know him. But have we said, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? To enter through that gate of trembling is a most beautiful and a most freeing place. Though the waves fill the boat, the one who made the waves is in that boat. And he's asleep in the stern. And the molecules obey him. And the waves crash at his pleasure. The waves are not big. Our God is big. The waves are not great. Our God is great. Corey Ten Boom, author of The Hiding Place and survivor of German concentration camps, said that people often came up to her and said, Corey, my, what a great faith you have. And she would smile and respond, no, it's what a great God I have. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, you have dealt tenderly with us today. Lord, that each one of us in our lives individually, corporately. Lord, we have waves in our lives that are indeed crashing against the boat. And Lord, all of us in one way or another have been tempted to fear. We've been tempted to have anxiety or desire to control our own circumstances. But Lord, this whole time, 
you have been asleep in the stern. Lord, we ask that we would look to our Savior, to your example this morning. Lord, that we would understand that we are safe in your arms. Lord, that you are God of very God. That you took on flesh, that you dwelt amongst us. That you walked amongst your people. That you performed these miracles. That you calmed the sea. That you died for us. And you rose three days later, defeating death and hell. That you have now risen and you sit at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. You are praying for us this week. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.